Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. And with me, as always, is my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. We introduced our new monthly format on our March 2019 podcast last month. But just a quick recap, we do a monthly links post at the end of every month where we highlight all the things that kind of caught our attention uh, during the month. And we're using this podcast as an opportunity to build out on some of those different articles and things that caught our attention and discuss a little bit more in depth some of the things that stood out to us the most during the month. So Chris, I, I think the thing that caught my eye the most this month in terms of event-driven and just interesting situations was the Anadarko-Chevron-Occidental bidding war. I'll disclose up front that we're long Anadarko, so we're certainly rooting for this bidding war to continue to heat up and kind of it to go from a knife fight to a gunfight or whatever escalates even higher than that. But I'll, I'll do a quick overview and then toss it over to you. Earlier this month, Oil giant Chevron reached a deal to buy Anadarko out for about $65 per share. And literally the moment that the news broke that the buyout was happening, there were rumors that Occidental had made a much higher bid for Anadarko. The rumors were kind of mid-70s. And that Occidental was surprised that Anadarko had just taken the Chevron much lower bid when Anad- when Occidental's bid was so much higher. And Anadarko really hadn't given them any indication that final bids were due or they were that close to signing a different bid. So, Chris, I'll turn it over to you. Why do you think Anadarko would choose Chevron? Oh, and then I guess the most important thing is Occidental did indeed last week come out and made a hostile bid at $76 per share. So it's tough to say that their rumors that they were at mid-70s were not true. They made a hostile bid. So I'll turn it over to you. Why do you think Anadarko chose Chevron's much lower bid than Occidental's bid? And then we can maybe talk about how we think this plays out and who ultimately will win Anadarko. They might have just made a mistake. They might have done something that we wouldn't do in their circumstance. But comparing the positions, for us, a 1% or 2% position, a 1% or 2% position is small. Anything above 4 or 5 is big. But a CEO has the equivalent of a more than 100% allocation position to one stock and one position if you add in comp and literal exposure, reputation, and so forth. And so there's many things that he has no control over, such as crude oil prices, and has limited visibility into. And I think it can really make it hard to stay focused on maximizing expected value, which was what we would like, focusing on the shareholder uh, exclusively within the confines of the law. When you have such a massively oversized position, it can cause overstating the importance of certainty, and not just certainty, but familiarity. I think that this is a company that has been for years and years and years uh, contemplated by insiders and outsiders as a takeover candidate. When you have exploration and production, it makes all the sense in the world to ponder the few large integrated multinational oil and gas companies as buyers. Chevron would have always been on that list. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, the moment you heard Chevron for buying Anadarko, the first thing you heard from longtime event traders or people filed the oil and gas place was, we thought this deal could have happened 10 years ago. We yep. thought it could have happened 15 years yep. ago. Could have been Chevron. It could have been Exxon. But this Anadarko always made sense. You know, I think you're hitting on a really interesting point with certainty. The the big roadblock I've heard to the Occidental bid is Occidental is a $50 billion company. Anadarko, when they're getting bought out, is about a $50 billion company. So this is really, Anadarko is getting taken over by Occidental, but it's almost a merger of equals, right? It, Oxy's the buyer, but in terms of size, a merger of equals. Chevron is a $250 billion company. And when they're buying you, there is just much more certainty that comes with that. So I, I think 
the question is, did management favor that certainty for Chevron way too much, as you were saying? Did there, a couple days before Anadarko entered the Chevron deal, they changed all of their change of control packages and their golden parachute. Did they say, hey, this golden parachute means so much to me, I'm going to way overpay certainty because it has a personal value to me versus the oxy bid? There's one way I'm skeptical and then one way I'm trying to kind of ponder the, the thought that perhaps Anadarko is playing this precisely the right way. My skepticism is that when I think about my and your job, and when I think about the management's job, they are in charge of maximizing value, but simply coming up with an ingredient for our portfolio, we can pick whether it's a 1% position or 10% position or 0% position. They need to make it as valuable as they can, not prejudge for us you know, how much exposure or leverage, as long as there is clear disclosure and they're doing something that's economically uh, not just rational, but optimized. If it's more valuable with a different cap structure, as long as they disclose it, we can handle everything else. It's not a good use of their time or energy, and it's certainly not a good use of their decisions to kind of goose it for us based on which stock uh, qualitatively. Once there's a certain level of cost savings, in theory, other synergies, the cash is very clear, the certainty and the stock, but their subjective qualitative preference is really uh, not something that they should do. Here's the way that I'm not skeptical. Um, It's not done. And when I look at negotiations generally from a deal target perspective, I like everything to be the fullest, fairest, most open, uh, put people at the most simultaneous parallel position as bidders. As a bidder, I like to disrupt that. Like Warren Mm -hmm. Buffett says, you know, get out of that, go faster, go slower, go around the parallel simultaneous process. Although there are exceptions. You know, if you look at LBO shops colluding to uh, disrupt processes, here there are very few potential bidders. I mean, you can quickly tick off everybody who's big enough and relevant enough to buy Anadarko. Something I like to do sometimes, and they might be doing here, is come up with the uh, bidder that is the best bidder in terms of cost savings, in terms of operations, the one that you trust the most qualitatively, come up with the highest bidder, and then take that and market that highest reference point back to the best bidder. In this case, if it ultimately ends up being Chevron, which I expect it will be, you haven't even cost yourself that breakup fee. The only thing, and I agree with everything you said there, the only thing in this case that really raises my eyebrows is they went with Chevron at 65 versus Oxy at 76. Oxy was clearly a very credible bidder just because they went hostile, right? They certainly were not doing this just to get a look at Anadarko's books or something. And Anadarko, in their press release where they said, we're considering the $76 bid for from Oxy, they said, you know, this bid has a lot of better, uh, it's a lot of better components. They've dropped some of the terms in our original negotiations. And to me, that looks like they were looking at the Oxy bid and never really considering it. They were always favoring the Chevron bid. And when I look at that and say, hey, you signed a deal with Chevron that includes a billion dollar breakup fee. That's about $2 per share. That's $2 per share more that Oxy is factoring into the $76 per share bid. It just doesn't seem like they pushed hard enough on Oxy. You know, if you favor certainty, you can get some of that through contract, right? You can say, hey, Oxy, we're really concerned that you're not going to be able to do this. We can't sign this deal unless you put some really onerous conditions on this deal, some really onerous financing conditions. If this deal breaks, you're going to give us the farms in term of, terms of breakup fee. You can push really hard on that. And it just seems like they they ended those negotiations 
way too soon in favor of the Chevron deal. But I, I want to turn to something you said at the end there. You said you think Chevron's the ultimate winner. I, I agree with you, but I'll turn to you first. Like, How do you think this plays out and why do you think Chevron's the ultimate winner? If you look at negotiating dynamics with a peer scale or smaller market cap company, many, many more things go wrong during negotiations, during the deal process, a lot more deals of these break, and then a lot more of the deals fail, even that are consummated, fail economically subsequently. Uh, and the number of iterations at this point is typically between two and three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, two of the things you think about if you want to win, uh, not not just one avoid overpaying, but looking at beating out uh, the other uh, bidder is whether you want to do a big knockout or whether you want to kind of tit for tat. Sometimes tit for tat ends up being much more expensive. I mean, sometimes almost comically, you look back at something a target would have accepted as a, a knockout bid early on, you end up paying much, much more. But you typically have two to three. And of course, two or three makes a big difference on who you are here. So I think that the likelihood is that we get something more from both. It would be somewhat odd for Oxy to have come out just this far with nothing more to say here. I think that Chevron has also uh, an incentive and likelihood, especially just with the data point of Oxy's bid. I mean, you you rely on your own advisors. You hopefully do your own analysis. You have a reason to have bid the first amount, and, and presumably you didn't bid a penny less than you thought it was ultimately economically worth. Presumably, you're there to make a return. So you're buying something you think is worth much more than you've bid. And you can cut into that a little bit. But social proof is, I think, ridiculously important to everybody in situations like this. And now that it's in demand, it's probably more in demand for Chevron. But Chevron has extra tools in their toolkit. They have the flexibility of how the breakup fee is dealt with, and they have the ability to add much more cash right here. Mm -hmm. So one thing about cash is it's fungible, divisible, and it also is not open to kind of the vagaries of the market where there's this kind of uh, reflexivity and circularity on what the stock component is worth on both sides. You can simply target uh, 72, 73, 74, come up with a discounted net present value of what the market and the target thinks Occidental is worth and simply to the penny beat it by a little bit and then do a feller kill price. You can hit some price uh, with 100% certainty you could end it, call it 80, or with a a uh, possibility you could end it, call it 72. And I think it's going to be in that range. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I, I agree. I think Chevron is the ultimate winner here. I think the major question is going to be, does, look, Chevron's first deal was $65 per share. Oxy's current deal is $76 per share, right? I think the major question is, is Chevron willing to pay up? If they are, I think it would be very strange for Oxy to come at 76, have Chevron match 76 and then say, oh, nope, that's it. That was the top bid. You generally, if you're that hostile bidder, you generally have one bump in your back pocket. You're not coming out with your best offer first. The question is, is Chevron willing to match Oxy? And I think the answer is leaning towards yes. You know, just reading some of the language around their calls and how they're talking about Anadarko. You know, I'm just their Q119 call. They say, we have the best strategic fit with Anadarko. We absolutely could have put more cash into our bid. Those seem like a bidder who's willing to come. As you said, they have the Occidental social proof where they've done all the work. Occidental has come in with 76 and they say, hey, there's another informed bidder who is willing to make that bid. We think we're the best strategic asset. They have the matching right. They can match any Occidental bid. So they can match that Occidental bid. And then they can say, let's see if they come back. We can just let them keep tit for tatting and match them until they push us out of our comfort zone. And then the last thing, you know, 
know, just looking at this from a synergies perspective, what we've talked about, what we've heard so far is the Oxy bid was a, about a $5 billion premium to the Chevron bid. Oxy says they can get $3.5 billion in synergies from buying Anadarko. Chevron was, was initially pushing $2 billion. If Chevron thinks they're the best bidder, then they can absolutely match whatever Oxy thinks the synergies is. $1.5 billion in synergies going up to meet that $5 billion premium completely makes sense to me. So I think they'll match. I think Oxy comes with a bump, and then I think Chevron can match it. And then the last thing before I flip it to you, Chevron's all-in capital costs are much lower. They're a huge company with lower cost debt. Every dollar of cash they put into the bid costs them less than it would cost Occidental. So I'll flip it over to you real quick. They have more flexibility. They will probably end up with it. Uh, one of the things I think is a little funny, but will happen here is you're going to bid up the stock, you're going to bid up the cash, and you're going to bid up the synergy estimate. Although presumably a few days ago, you'd already done a synergy estimate. So they'll simply reveal more of what they always probably had in their back pocket, which they had hoped to be their perspective overperformance and now will simply be kind of displayed out to the market. My history with with uh, acquisitions is most of the time when you do an acquisition, you want to come with the most conservative numbers to the market because yeah. if you're a management team and you miss your synergy target, that hits your credibility. So you come with, with something you're really sure you're going to hit. As the bidding war goes on, I'm sure we'll see both of them take it up a little bit. And then the last thing I want to mention on Chevron's, we already know that Anadarko's board kind of prefers Chevron. So if it comes down to a Chevron bid at, call it 78 versus an Oxy bid at 80. I think the Anadarko board might even go with the 78 just for sure certainty. Now, if it's 72 versus 80, I think shareholders would revolt if Anadarko went with a 72 bid versus 80. But I think any tie goes to Chevron here. Last question I want to ask you, Chris, you know, this is a bidding war and the quote unquote winner of Anadarko, whoever ends up actually buying Anadarko, do you think it will have been better to be the winner and buy the Anadarko strategic asset? Or do you think it will be better to be the loser and be the person who missed out on paying what's going to be a huge premium to buy Anadarko? Loser. Almost always. Um, I believe in cost savings. I believe this deal makes sense on the margin, but you are making a gamble with money that you're paying on a big premium. I think ultimately in bidding wars, there's a high likelihood that somebody overpays and I uh, endorse them doing so. I, I, I completely agree. You know, I think Andarco was trading in the mid 40s before the Chevron deal was announced. Oxy's bid is currently at 76 plus they'll pay another $2 per share in breakup fee. I think that's pushing 16 to $18 billion in total value, in total premium value for Andarco. That is a lot of premium to pay. It's going to be tough. And every dollar that they increase this is going to make it harder and harder for the winner to realize returns from it long term. You you look at a much lower stock price and you think, what was the market valuing back then when you talk about uh, set aside cost savings, but when you talk about kind of the revenue side of bright ideas you have. It's kind of like when you talk about golden parachutes, I think, well, what were you getting paid the millions of dollars for to do your job a few days ago? Presumably it was to do those things that make sense. Presumably the market was valuing those things that make more or less sense. And then you say, oh, but I can, uh, you know, I show up at the same industry conferences. I went to the same schools. I have the same experiences, have the same job history, but I'm going to make, you know, 40% more sense than they would. I think that that's a big gamble. Yeah. And the other thing here is, you know, I wonder at some point when the incentive for Chevron to just walk away will be where the management team go, look, 
they offered us a deal at 65. We had a competitor who was willing to pay 76 and then they gave us a billion dollars to walk away. Like at one point you just say, we are so disciplined and we are such great acquirers and such great negotiators. Like that's a feather in our cap. We walk away and we'll go do a string of like kind of smaller deals. But Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, turning away from Anadarko and Chevron, let's just, you know, anything else jump out at you as interesting in the month? Let's see. That was the big deal that I've been thinking about. Uh, What else have you been reading about here. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've been looking a lot about at the, uh, the C Corp conversion from yes. Blackstone. Uh, Blackstone earlier this month, they announced a C Corp conversion. They used to be a publicly traded partnership or they currently are, and they're going to convert to C Corp. And, you know, there's a lot going on in the alternative manager space. It's a space I follow really closely. Last, mm-hmm. last month, uh, we mentioned for briefly on the podcast, Brookfield bought out Oak Tree. And so it's a really interesting space going on. But the thing that kind of struck me with Blackstone is they announced they were converting to a C-Corp. And it's one of the few interest- instances I know of where Blackstone said, hey, guys, we're going to voluntarily increase the taxes we pay over time. And the market looks at this and they say, oh, that's great. We, we're going to bid your stock up because it's going to be more liquid and it's going to be in more indices. But it's really interesting to me that by going from a partnership, which pays lower all-in taxes, to a C-Corp, which will pay more in taxes, the market says, yes, that's what we want you to do. Voluntarily pay more in taxes, and we will pay more for your stock. We think this makes all the sense in the world. I'll flip it over to you. What do you think about that? I think it's a big mistake. Tax efficiency is one of the few things that is a free lunch for people either in our position as asset allocators or management's position as operators that you can consistently do something about. And it's kind of, you know, all day long when we have something that is very, very likely, we discount it by three or five or 7% when so much of what we do, we are discounting by 30 or 40%. This is something you don't discount at all. It's just you end up wealthier when you have more tax efficiency. Um, and so if you look at a lot of the most rational CEOs, John Malone, probably first chair in this category, um, they're intensive about tax efficiency. Intentionally paying more taxes rarely makes sense. And then some of the merits of these conversions to me is really dubious. For example, the ones you mentioned, liquidity and investor awareness, they're good things that matter up to a point. But all of the major asset managers, clearly these huge ones that we're talking about, already have all the liquidity they could possibly need, all the awareness they could possibly need. I'd prefer a lower tax bill. Value is something to be maximized. Liquidity is something to be managed. Once you have enough, having more doesn't really help. Yeah. And the two things I think are interesting here, Blackstone, I mean, they generate tons and tons of cash flow, right? So if they think they're undervalued, they don't need like a short-term pop from converting to from partnership to C-Corp to take care of that undervaluation. They could take advantage of it by buying back their shares. And they have traditionally shied far, far away from getting aggressive with share repurchases, which I think is interesting for a group of private equity and real estate managers who pitch themselves as extremely financially sophisticated. You're saying, my stock's undervalued, but I'm not going to buy it back. I'm going to do everything except for take advantage of that valuation by buying shares back. That was one. And then the second thing I thought was interesting is Blackstone comes out and says, hey, we are major shareholders in this company. We are managing this company for the long term. And the, in the next sentence, they say, the reason we can do this C conversion is because the tax cuts of 2017 has resulted in the difference between us being a partnership and us being a C corp. It's not that big of a difference. So we can do it. And 
to me, that's not managing for the long term. Like, who knows what corporate tax rates are two, five, 10 years from now. Going from a partnership to C Corp is a one way conversion. If corporate tax rates rise in the future, they can't go back to their old structure and they've just locked themselves into paying a higher tax rate just for what looks to me like kind of a one term share price boost of I'm not sure how long that actually lasts. Also, if you look at the specifics of that tax law, it was an ephemeral moment of a unified government uh, heading into a next election where each part of government is competitive. It could be unified in either direction. And there were no commensurate spending restraints that made those tax cuts at all durable. So it's not a sustainable uh, balance. And it wasn't a sustainable form of government that we even have anymore in terms of the majority. To pass it, similar to how they've passed all tax cuts in the past, they use budget reconciliation, which means in 10 years, the tax cuts have to sunset. Now, most people think we'll renew those tax cuts in 10 years. But as you're saying, like, we don't even know if they're going to last past 2020, 2021. Like, who's to say in 10 years that they're going to have the political strength just to extend those tax cuts? We don't know if in 10 years we're going to have political leadership that even defines themselves as capitalists, let alone mm-hmm. any particular current party. So there's very limited visibility. There's a, a lot of uh, volatility and uncertainty. Usually you head into an election cycle kind of knowing one or two or maybe even all parts of government with a high level of confidence. Right now we know nothing. And so it's kind of, Uh, a big swing based on a very peculiar specific tax bill that could be reversed quickly. The other thing I thought was interesting about this, and this might be going a little bit too too far into the weeds for a podcast, but Blackstone did this move and their share price went up by about $4 per share. And they do call it $2.20 per share in earnings. So that's less than two turns of multiple for this conversion. And Apollo, which is currently a partnership, has publicly said, hey, we think you need to get at least two and a half turns of multiple on a conversion to make up for that tax inefficiency long term. And Apollo's share price was up about 10% just in sympathy with the Blackstone move. But you look at what they've said and they said, hey, Blackstone didn't get enough pop for us to justify being able to go do this. But the market clearly liked the Blackstone move, despite the kind of, I'd say, the questionable tax inefficiencies. And they're thinking that Apollo will go do that, despite Apollo having said in the past, it doesn't look like it was enough of a multiple pop for them to go out and do that. So I thought that was interesting. What about uh, anything else in the in the world going on that kind of struck caught your eye this month? I hadn't even thought of the asset manager one until you mentioned that, but that was a biggie. Okay, well, uh, you know, I, I guess we can just wrap it up there then. Before we wrap it up, I just want to say thank you to all our listeners. We'll go through our disclosures. We're long in Adarko, which we mentioned on this podcast, and we're long uh, Brookfield, which we mentioned uh, briefly on this podcast. If you want to, we'll put it into the links, but the website is yet another value blog. That's where we post our monthly links, and we'll also put that into the show notes. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Oh, long KKR. Oh, long KKR. Uh, we're long KKR as well. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you next month.